Sigmundus Creatus est, hinz e und adaptationes mirabiles, quarum modus hieb est, itac vocatus sam hermes tris magistus, habens tres partes philosophie totius mundi, completum est, Photixide operatione solis. I guess maybe this might be a kind of a brief interlude, uh, just to pause and to consider for a moment a few things. <clears throat> and I want to tilt the mood in a certain specific uh, consciousness level. Uh, so stop and think very carefully for a moment, because I just love this, these quotes in any case. So the Warren Zevon song, he's one of my favorite artists, Warren Zevon. Uh, roll into the headless Thompson gunner, right? There's a line in this song, and maybe I'm a little slow in the uptake, but I felt like I had such an epiphany. Uh, when uh, he finds the guy who betrayed him, the other Thompson gunner who betrayed him by blowing off his head because he's the headless Thompson gunner, he walks in, uh, aims his Thompson gun, and never says a word. So uh, just take a moment and why didn't he say anything? I mean, obviously he was pissed off because the guy blew off his head. So why didn't he say anything? Um, okay, we'll take another uh, moment to pause. And um, all of these elements... Uh, that I'm going into, uh, alchemy, hermeticism, the philosophy, or whatever. Most religions think highly of light, or fire, or sunlight. It's pretty common to use fire. Uh, Zoroastrians, of course, fire is sacred. Uh, but Mircea Iliade points out about the sacredness of mastering fire. There, there are several groups who do. Uh, shamans, smiths, potters and alchemists all have to master fire in order to do their craft. And their craft is spiritual because it brings about change. It changes things from one state to another. And, or in the case of, of, of the shaman, unlike the others, although smiths have some magical abilities in, in certain tribes, the shaman actually goes to collect the pieces of the soul that are... Um, Lost. I'm checking the time for a reason, because I want to do 10 or 20 minutes and then start moving on. Uh, you know, I don't want to drag everybody else into repetition. But but even if you even if you did not, um, even if you don't believe in divine forces and such things, fire is a pretty magical element anyway. It's mysterious. Um, because what is it really? It's It's... It's an oxidation reaction, but it's producing heat and light as the, the wood or the coal or oil or whatever it is, is being consumed by that reaction. And fire is kind of uh, magical. Um, most of it isn't solid. It's ephemeral. And looking into a fire, it's bright. It's like it's reproducing the sun the light of the sun. I mean, one can only imagine what, what, um, 
people must have imagined or felt when they were able to control that element by their own will. How they figured that out. It's amazing because they would have known what fire is from lightning strikes or forest fires or something else. But I wonder, when, when they initially figured out, it almost seems like something you wouldn't be able to stumble over by accident. How do you figure out how to start fires? Uh, although I know there are some tribes that the fire that they have is the same fire they've always had. And at some point it must have been started. Um, but it's up to the tenders of the fire who are responsible for it. They have to continue feeding it to continue to add wood to it or whatever it is. And they carry it with them like in a, I don't know, in some kind of a container, how they would do that. And these are primitive. I think they're Australian. There's an Australian Aborigine tribe that does do that. And it is, it is a magical element because it transforms things. And just in the human body, the Ayurvedic medicine calls it uh, fire. Your body is using fire to heat and cook the food you've eaten, and it transforms into some of you, which that's also kind of weird to think about. You're eating something created from another uh, life form. And the cells in that DNA are specifically coded for, for it. The cow you're eating is cow. And that, that stuff is meant to help keep the cow alive. And you cook it and it releases tons of vitamins and nutrients for you. Which I, I've heard some speculation that that's why the brain, the human brain, was able to develop so much more in its complexity and, and, and integrate more. Because it was getting better nutrients better nutrition, more protein, because the fire, the cooking releases, uh, and it help, it denatures some, but it also creates others as, as the food cooks and changes its form. But the human body converts that flesh from this other living, once living being that you've had to kill in order to, to eat it, to truly benefit from eating it, uh, Humans aren't like wolves, after all. And the body deconstructs those cells. Then it reassembles them in such a way that it's producing more human cells. It's transmuting. It's a kind of a transmutation. It is, because you're changing it from something that would be totally useless to us to being us, part of us. And, I mean, it's it's sort of a spooky thing, you know. Um, scientifically, I'm sure there's, you know, there's explanations, there's uh, descriptions, and there's demystifications. But seeing that I have kind of a romantic nature, it does, to me, it seems interesting that these, the cells, which break down the nutrients and reassemble them, they're conscious enough to do that to know what needs to be changed and exactly how it needs to be changed. <laughs> it's kind of a remarkable thing. But it's fire that in the particular case of, of these alchemists, and it kind of makes sense because 
the alchemists had a different worldview than we do. Uh, they saw matter as being alive. And all nutrients, elements, all materials are in a state of development. That culminates, of course, in, in gold for the metal, for the solid. Uh, sunlight, if you want to take the spiritual, or at least the less tangible element of, of consciousness and experience, sunlight is considered very, very sacred. It's very high. So the process is happening over very slow degrees. Crystals grow in the earth. Metal, they think if it comes from the earth, the earth is a living being. The mother nurtures that metal. And the metal is, is growing at a slow rate. But you can increase the speed of its growth and transmute it using fire, which you've domesticated as a tool. And so you're, you're participating in the life and the growth of, of things in the earth. You're, you're still part of nature. It is true that you're enhancing and you're accelerating it, but you're still following all of its rules. You're not changing. Um, and it is interesting. I mean, we're, we are now modern humans, technologically advanced. We're not exactly living in accord with nature. Yet we still use these elements, some of them, running electricity through them. That's another means of fire in order to harness our information technologies. Which is, is kind of remarkable. Quartz crystals? You need quartz crystals. Uh, you need silicon, the microchips made of silica. Glass. It's, it's, it's kind of remarkable. And how, how dependent our existence at this level is on fire, on electricity, on burning fuels to, to run our engines. That's fire. Burning fossil fuels that used to once be prehistoric trees and plants. And so we're re-releasing the energy of the sunlight that shone upon the earth all those hundreds of millions of years ago, which eventually, under pressure, became coal, natural gas, oil, and, of course, diamonds. All of these are made from carbon. Carbon. States of carbon crystals. And we know that crystals grow. So, almost, I mean, I'm not going to try to convince you of this, but one could almost say that the alchemists were right and the, the, the primitive shamans. They were right about the earth nurturing metals that grow in the earth and crystals um, and, and plants that grow from the earth are being nurtured by the same minerals. Minerals that are in our bodies too, iron, carbon, uh, you know, elements at nitrogen, oxygen. Our bodies are mostly made of rearrangement of molecules in that stuff. How is that? It imbues these molecules with life, and it converts them into self, to me. Now, it was also feared. There are some tribes that Iliade talks about in uh, The Forge and the Crucible, uh, the smiths, although necessary craftsmen for the tribe, these are African tribes. I, I'd have to review the passage to know the exact name of the tribe that Iliade was citing. But to them, 
even though smiths are, are necessary. They live in fear of the smith, and the smith is almost treated like an untouchable in India. They're, they're, they're regarded as doing a taboo profession um, because of the fear. You know, we don't really have that in our society, and it's probably for the best, but we don't, we have some professions that aren't looked upon with as much respect as they should be or as others are, but the smiths were almost like criminals, even though the tribes needed them for whatever reason, to make implements, uh, to make, I don't know, spokes or something, who knows, for wheels. A lot of seemingly very primitive tribes, or maybe weapons, had advanced metallurgy and were able to make, if not intricate jewelry, they could make other things as well from from metal. But the alchemist must harness fire in order to transmute, in order to, in effect, if not participate in the life of the earth and its process of creation, but in more Christian or Muslim-leaning alchemists, you are recreating the creation. You're going back to reenact the, the cosmogony, uh, which uh, Iliade also, and so does Emil Durkheim. He talks about um, in, uh, oh, now I'm going to get this wrong, the elementary forms of uh, the religious life. And he talks about how the year, it truly is a renewal. You, you are going back to the primordial chaos. And you're recommencing the creation all over again, and you're reinitiating. Uh, for people living a traditional uh, Aboriginal wisdom, a traditional lifestyle, although they innovate, it's true, and perhaps scholars have evolved this view somewhat more. I know anthropology has advanced, uh, but in many cases, it is necessary to keep things the way they were, the way they always were, okay? You don't, on New Year's Eve, you don't change your, your rituals. Uh, you reenact the mythical creation that allowed your people to become who they were. And you recreate the actions of the gods, or goddesses, or spirits, or um, creator. Usually, often there's a... a, a a not-so-competent creator being, and there's an evil twin who is tricked into helping aid the creation. Um, and he is through that contradiction, that conflict, uh, that the forces of the world are, are personified. And, and oftentimes, the creator is, is able to deceive um, uh, the wicked, evil brother. Um, Jordan Peterson calls these the hostile brothers. Iliade talks about them as, as uh, light and dark, uh, enemies, what have you. Uh, Zolmoxis, the vanishing god, he has a pretty long section about the trickery and the different creation myths in, in the Eastern European creation myths, which are also influenced some by Zoroastrianism, which hence light and dark, uh, creation and corruption. 
uh, because everything that Ahura Mazda, he's the god of light in Zoroastrianism, that which he created was perfected. There was no blemish. If he had been allowed to create as he wished to, we wouldn't have winter, we wouldn't have death, we wouldn't have disease, etc. Um, but because uh, um, Angra Menu or Ahriman, okay, was the evil, and, and this, this is pretty apparent through Zoroastrianism, Zerbanism, uh, um, the revival of Zoroastrianism, which lasted for a while, even in Manichaeism to a point, to a certain level. Um, the, the evil can only blemish, the evil twin, especially in Zerbanism. They are twin brothers. Uh, they are, for the most part, good will always win over evil. But there are certain directions that Zerbanism goes where there, the dualistic cosmology has to be such because they're almost exactly equivalent in strength. Uh, the difference being that the evil cannot create, he can only corrupt. Whereas the good can create and creates perfectly, but he's, he's always challenged and somewhat deflected by the evil. And so part of living in accord with the, the cosmology is you have to find these things, these creatures that were blemished, and you're committing a sacred act killing them, to remove them from the world. Uh, and also they serve a practical purpose, because usually these creatures are, are a threat to your well-being. A scorpion could sting you and kill you and you die. So uh, in Eastern Europe, the cosmogonies often involved a watery world, and the devil, or the evil twin, or what have you, would do a deep dive under the water and would come up with a piece of, of the earth in his hands or what have you. And he would start to build, the, the good God would start to build with this material and would begin to build uh, the world, the continents, the island. Um, the world might be floating on a sea. Um, and in order to in order to build this world, both forces had to, through their push and their pull on each other, they had to work together in order for this creation to, to work. And especially on the one hand, you have the, the, the rigidity of, of ritual in order for one to experience the ultimate freedom of recreating from the very beginning when they reenact these rituals of the cosmogony, of the creation of the universe, they aren't just playing games. They are personifying and embodying the God. They are the God, in fact. They're so in accord with that being that they participate in his consciousness. And both of these forces are necessary. And it must be the same, exactly the same, Everything must happen exactly as it has before. Every step must happen exactly as it has before. I want to put in here a parenthetical that I, I most sincerely and urgently beseech you to watch dark. And those words I just uttered about 
things must be, every step must be exactly the same as it was before. When you see dark, and you'll, you'll recognize that I chose those words in accord with description of the cosmogony and the creation of the universe, but you'll understand why these words are important for the plot of that show as well. And I won't give anything away for it. The spoilers episode is the one I'm doing next time. This is still Sigmundus Creators Est. It's the first of a two-part. Um, but there will be spoiler alerts galore in the second. I want to I repeat that. I, I want it to be repeated often because I really love that show. And because in the past, I've, I've made mistakes before with friends where I, I assumed he knew something about the history that the show was based on, and he didn't know. And I fucked up the whole thing for him. He was pissed at me for, like, days. And I don't want to... I, I know how that can feel. I don't want to do that ever again. It was a mistake. But in alchemy... Uh, the Rosarium Philosophorum, uh, a lot of the stuff that Jung is inspired by, uh, deal with light and darkness, with uh, matter and spirit, with opposites that aren't supposed to be able to interact, but not only do they, but they change one another. And the two opposites, polar opposed opposites, um, end up synthesizing something more. They're, they are um, recreating something. Same way that uh, human digestive system breaks down uh, the meat of fish or what have you, of cows, and converts that into you, into your flesh, your DNA, your cells, your different cells in your organs. Okay, The same as I briefly alluded to in the Kabbalistic cosmological tree, the, uh, the tree of life where I talked about certain aspects of alchemical Kabbalah, or even to, in some strains of, of the outright traditional Jewish Kabbalah. There's um, the Toledano tradition that spent much of its formation in Spain, and when the Spanish ejected them from their country, it was a catastrophe, 1492. That was one of several strains of Kabbalistic mysticism that was scattered in the in the diaspora, but I, I suggested you might have uh, you have three columns on the cosmic tree, on the tree of life. The left side is severity, judgment, harshness. Uh, in a word, in in a word, darkness or evil. Although the Kabbalists don't consider it to be so, of course. The right side, love, compassion. Uh, mercy. Chesed is almost, it's more than just mercy. It's sort of a, a divine, um, unconditional, unconditional love and acceptance. It's chesed. It's, it's, uh, there's a, a level to it of almost of, of, of a superlative, the archetype of how it is to be merciful. It's chesed. And in the center, the heart is tefirot. And the, the heart, uh, that is the mediating synthesis. That's The heart is higher than mercy or judgment. It's higher than kindness or, or cruelty. It's, it, it, is an, um, 
it is constituted from both, but it it belongs to neither. And then, of course, there's some argument that um, the Toledano stream of Kabbalah, which I've read some about, I'm no, by no means expert, not on any form of Kabbalah, not even the Kabbalah which I have studied for many, many, many years. Uh, I don't consider myself an expert on that, on that because of its, not only its complexity, but it, it's something that has to be experienced. And you advance uh, through uh, your experiences, your different emotions, your conflict and your contradictions. Um but there's some argument that this this stream of, of Kabbalah, the Toledano tradition, which also is very similar to the alchemical in certain aspects. I feel like the alchemical Kabbalah or Dion Fortune's Kabbalah, which they spell with a Q, uh, or even the Kabbalah of Aleister Crowley, it, it, it's closer to the Toledano tradition than it is uh, to the speculative theosophical uh, Kabbalah of Isaac Luria, of, of Chaim Vital. But there were three or four of Isaac Luria's students who wrote different Kabbalistical treatises, and they disagree because he taught his students different aspects of the wisdom, because his students were at different levels of, of advancement, of awareness. They were different levels of consciousness. And what was enough for some of them would have been poison for others. It's It's the same way that you you don't feed uh, a six-month-old child solid food. They can't digest it. You don't eat a fruit before it's ripe because it can kill you. And especially with, with the Lurianic system of Kabbalah, the, the developments and the changes are almost infinite. They're endless. Uh, wheels within wheels within wheels. So in the alchemical Kabbalah or in the Rosarium Philosophorum, you have these opposite, yet equally or nearly so, opposed forces that must reconcile. It's not enough. In, in um, Manichaeism, there's no reconciliation. Uh, the mixture is the ultimate perversity. The mixture between good and evil is the ultimate perversion uh, that the darkness um, perpetrated against the pure, the pure light. But the light must be released. And so, almost as if Manichaeism was influenced by Jainism from the East, from India. Um, certainly it was interest, interested in, uh, influenced by Buddhism, especially at that time. It might have been affected directly by actual Buddhism, maybe even Pure Land, maybe uh, Zen. Very probably, you know, on the Silk Road, that would have been China. But it was also influenced by the other the other heresy, Jainism. And the purpose in Manichaeism is to free the imprisoned light from matter until every last piece of the light has been set free. And it as it's freed, it ascends to the moon, and then the moon sends it on to the higher spheres, to the higher planets, until eventually the all of the light has been harvested and freed. And all is restored to the fullness, the glory of the, the pleroma, okay, the, the ultimate heaven. And like Jainism, or uh, a heresy that many 
consider Manichaeism, the uh, Albigensians. If you've read any Dan Brown, you know whom I'm speaking of without me even having to explain it. Uh, the Anything that holds you down, that imprisons the light in matter, is sinful. It's not the disobeying of God's laws or uh, the disobeying or disregard of Jesus Christ. It's, it's the encouragement and strengthening of, of the darkness to keep the light entrapped. So they, their morality is somewhat different from the prevailing Christian morality, and the two could not be reconciled. And so the church proved that they followed a loving God and a merciful God by exterminating them all. Um, but the Albigensians, so that like the Manichees, sexual intercourse, if it needs to be done, you weren't considered evil. But the ultimate evil was bringing a child into the world. You're trapping light and matter to do this. Uh, depending on your level of advancement, uh, in the Manichaeans or the Albigensian. You change your diet accordingly. You change your lifestyle, your, what you stress. Vegetarians, the higher um, initiates, would not eat meat. Like many religions, they value vegetarianism because it's gentler to the earth or it's more in accord with the purity of, uh, of um, wanting not to entrap or to kill, to cause suffering in the world. Uh, and in Jainism, of course, ultimately, you're the ultimate state of uh, mokso, to escape samsara, is at the end of a life well-lived, you um, have spread the wisdom as best you can, and you've done your best to protect animals and to protect animal life and to free uh, these souls that are trapped this is a, it's a recurring motif in religion, is it not? These entrapped souls. To cease consuming altogether. It, the fire is, is being extinguished. You stop eating, and it's a sacred act. It's not suicide. It's not killing yourself, you know, the way we view suicide in the West, and with, not without good reason, I might add, as a tragedy. Um... And I'm sure it's tragic in, in the East in different circumstances, but if you willfully, and you're elderly, and you're a sage, if you willfully take up this choice to slowly starve yourself to death, it's a sacred act. It's the ultimate, um, it's, it's sort of the, the ultimate act of devotion. Um, these forces, the light and the dark, are often synthesized, although they remain irreconcilable, and in the increasingly severity of dualisms, they, they must not reconcile. And as I, as I say in Manichaeism, the light cannot defeat the darkness. That's the reason why the problem began in the first place, because the god tried to defeat the dark, and he was defeated. The, the purpose is to free, or in the case of alchemy, the purpose is to transmute to enact a change of matter and of spirit. And in the alchemical Kabbalah, it's to transmute and change your spirit, um, to ascend through different levels of consciousness, like in the chakras, similar to the systems of yogi, 
where your consciousness changes, your energy changes according to which chakra your energy is mostly focused into or in its balances. And so the Toledano, especially in modern day, uh, is influenced heavily by New Age or by Eastern religions. So you would see a Jewish diagram of the Tree of Life, but then you might also see a drawing on the body, which if you didn't know any better, using the body as a diagram to uh, draw out the spiritual path, if you didn't know any better, you'd assume you were looking at uh, Hindu, yogic, maybe even tantric diagrams, uh, or the Tibetan Buddhist, the Vatrayana. You'd be looking at a diagram that belongs in a yogic system of, of uh, ascension and not a Jewish one. It, it, draw, it draws very much. And one has to assume there was some interplay and exchange between the early Kabbalists of the 13th century and at Langu uh, Languedoc, I don't know, Languedoc, how do you, how you pronounce that? And southern France, the Languedoc version, that's where the Albigensians were at their strongest, is in southern France. And of course, uh, Dan Brown fans jumping up and down, because you know exactly, exactly what I'm, what I'm talking about. Because he got, he got some of it right uh, in terms of the scholarship. I, he drew primarily upon um, a book of, of dubious quality, but I've read it. I enjoyed it. It was, you know, an interesting read. It had it, it, its weaknesses on a number of levels. But not all of their work was um, totally erroneous. So when they talk about uh, the prior of, of Sion, it exists. Okay, They talk about the, the castle at Montigueur. I'm probably pronouncing that wrong. It exists. When they're, when they're saying that uh, the siege and there's a legend, you know, what did they sneak out of the castle in the dead of night? Uh, the grail, the blood of Christ, the line of Christ. You know, the, the scholars, most scholars, serious scholars, I should add, I need to come up with a better word because I'm not meaning to sound like I'm using it as a pejorative per se, but I have to stress that scholars who really know their the material well, who aren't like me, they don't know it through secondhand sources, or they're not like Dan Brown, who wanted to write fiction, good for him, more power to him. But when you can read Syriac, and you can read Coptic, and you can read Aramaic, and you can read Hebrew, and Greek, and Latin, well, these all these languages, okay, you have a, a shot at getting closer to the actual meanings of these texts, because you're not getting your knowledge through the interpretive lens of another. Maybe even two levels of interpretation, because one is the scholar in question, uh, you know, John Smith's uh, description of the, the uh, steps of ascension in Manichae and blah, 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 blah. But suppose you have to translate John Smith from, from German or French into English. Now you're adding another layer because now the translator better understand what he's saying or she, or they're going to bring words into the discourse. And I've, I've already pointed out that this is a problem that already have a, a meaning 
a contextual meaning assigned to them by a common usage that negates or confuses um, the scholar studying the material because you're going to you're going to uh, project your own context onto these scriptures and 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 uh, imbue these words with an inaccurate meaning according to their original milieu and their original context. And by doing so, the recreation, because basically what, what's being done when you discuss the works of other scholars or other philosophers, you're recreating a model of that scholar with which you can now interact. So let's say I'm writing about Nietzsche, and we'll get to him soon. Nietzsche... Uh, there's some very important concepts in Friedrich Nietzsche that will help imbue Dark with a lot of meaning, a lot of um, clarity. Say I'm speaking of Friedrich Nietzsche, and I, I am discussing Zarathustra, because ultimately that's the book I want you to, to read in order to understand Dark. I highly recommend the, the verses at the end, uh, what is it? There's the drunken song, and there's the dancer, and then there's the the hymn to eternity. Uh, and if if you really want to have an adventure, Zarathustra was supposed to have four parts. Nietzsche only published three, the prologue, and then the three parts. Part four of Zarathustra, fascinating. I know when I read it, the Jungian in me was jumping up and down with glee. Uh, but this poem is like, it's, uh, it's about the beauty of eternity. Um, or is that in Beyond Good and Evil? Well, the two are very, very close. Uh, the way Nietzsche described Beyond Good and Evil, he said, this is the same material as Thus Spoke Zarathustra, but it's in a different form. Because he recognized that the way he had written Zarathustra, maybe it didn't reach people, the way he wanted it to. He was a philologist. He was... There are occasionally human beings who walk the face of the earth who are so intelligent, but they're also wise. And they imbue their arguments with a kind of a richness, a depth, that most of us will never match. Nietzsche's one of those. When he's speaking of his objections to Kant when he's speaking against Schopenhauer. He knows to the core what these men had to say and tried to say. Maybe even in certain cases better than they knew themselves. Occasionally that can happen where you're grappling with a concept and, and even you don't understand all of its implications. Um, so when Nietzsche recognized you know, the allegorical form, Zarathustra, he found Zarathustra wasn't powerful enough to be the anti-Christian. Note that I don't say anti-Christ, because in his book, The Antichrist, Nietzsche praises Jesus. The only positive thing he says in that entire book is about Jesus, Jesus Christ, not about the Roman church or about the doctrines and dogma of that said church or of its heretical Protestantism. But Zarathustra wasn't strong enough. Nietzsche wanted to break free, to destroy these old dogmas, 
because he saw them as being both the result of and the force that was corrupting the culture of, of, uh, of Europe. And he saw them as, as pernicious and destructive morals, morals that prevented you from developing to your highest potential. So let's say that I continue to talk about Nietzsche for a while. And I, in effect, I'm reading him in English. He wrote in German. I'm reading him after he's been dead for 130, no, 120 years. He died in 1900. And I'm interpreting him through, so two layers of, of linguistic difference, 120 years of philosophical drift of the changing of the world. Uh, Nietzsche was something different before World War II than he became after it. And I'm having to interpret it through what I've been taught about his scholarship and his philosophy by my teachers across a span of many years. And so that's my, re my Nietzsche, my reconstruction of Nietzsche. That's how you can have scholars t talk about in their discussions. They can say, well, Walter Kaufman's Nietzsche uh, is in error in this way, in this way, in this way. And the reason I know that is because Michel Foucault's Nietzsche. Uh, when they're painting, it's, it's like being a painter and, and copying the drawing but doing it in such a way that it isn't an exact replica, you're stressing different aspects of that landscape that you're copying, what have you. So when they speak of different, okay, Jacques Derrida's Nietzsche, um, Carl Jung's Nietzsche, uh, Michel Foucault, Gilles Deleuze's Nietzsche, they're drawing from different Nietzsche's, even though they're all drawing from what he said, they're interpreting what he said in different manners. And this is one of the more credible reasons, most of them aren't, why postmodernism rejects grand narratives, because there is an increased recognition of the complexity of these thinkers and our inability to fully and accurately recreate them. And among other things, that's, that's allowing one to have more leeway discussing. So my Nietzsche might be steeped in, in errors, might be steeped in insight that I'm recreating. So when they talk about Nietzsche, uh, or any other thinker for that matter, you're, you're creating a model, and you're engaging that model. You're not directly engaging that thinker, because they're, they're, they're either no longer with us, or... If they are, uh, for example, um, uh, Jürgen Habermas okay, writes in German, and his work is translated into, into English. So, I mean, you're already somewhat separating both linguistically and the levels of interpretation. There's a wall between you and that thinker's meanings. You might get it wrong. Uh, and so then there's sort of a drift uh, across the years of emphasis and of reinterpretation and recapitulation. And when we're dealing with some of these thinkers, and the alchemists are among them, you're not just dealing with a few different 
layers of separation, a language barrier, a translator maybe misunderstood something he was saying. You're dealing with 2,000 or more years, maybe 2,500 years, okay, of interpretation, reinterpretation, persecution. The church both appropriated alchemical or hermetic concepts hijacked, you know, they, 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 they stowed away with the Neoplatonic ideas that they took onto themselves. And you're dealing with a serious, a serious level of repression because the church considered alchemists dangerous because of their heresy. And the kingdom considered them dangerous because if they really can make gold out of lead and they can counterfeit, they'll drive the value of, of my currency through the mud. Uh, but the, the kings always made sure to have their own alchemist at their court. You know, that you, you want to destroy anything that might compete. So you have to attack their, their errors in order to refute them. Now, I've got to say, Augustine, although he launches a massive and devastating, overwhelming attack against Manichaeism, I don't feel as though he despises these people because he was a Manichae for many years and a Neoplatonist himself. So if you, if you want to find a source for... There were others, Clement of Alexandria, uh, uh, Dionysos, the pseudo-apogeriite, okay? But Augustine is your guy, if you really want to understand, in its more purified form, exactly how did Neoplatonism, how did it end up part of Christianity? Well, because of him. Because he took concepts of good and evil and emanationism from, even though there's nothing, there's nothing in Christianity that has a thing to do with emanationism, it's creation from nothing. It's creation ex nihilo from the word, right? In the beginning. Uh, the idea of emanationism means not only do you not need or have such, but you have time. Uh, with emanationism, there's more room for a cycle, for a cosmic cycle where things are repeated again and again. Whereas in Christianity, uh, Iliade stresses Judaism, uh, I think he's somewhat wrong about this in a way because he's both right and wrong because it is true that the Abrahamic religions are more outside of time. You're in history. It affects all these religions, Christianity, Islam, Judaism. Whereas he tried to argue and unconvincingly in the end that Christianity, because of its liturgical year, was closer to being cyclical than Judaism, which is, is just simply straight up wrong. Because if you really want to be closer to a mythological time, Judaism follows a lunar calendar, and they're always commemorating and reenacting the events, the Exodus, the Passover. I mean, you can argue very strongly that it is cyclical too. But what he tried to say, and, I, and, and, and again, I, I say he was right and wrong, and he was right, because the religions of the book, when you juxtapose them to Aboriginal tribal religions, primitive religions, and the Eastern religions, there is a beginning, a middle, and an end 
uh, Kabbalists say there's a book and an author and a story. It's from the Zohar. You're putting these worldviews and religions into a linear frame. Okay, whereas in some of the other, in the Eastern religions, uh, you're, it's as if you're going to the movies and watching the same movie over and over again. And don't we do this? Watch the same movie over and over again, even though you know exactly what's going to happen. And you relive that moment when you first watched it and, and, and you notice things new about it every time. But it, it, it's a reenactment in, in the secular world. But the Western religions don't have, they have linear time. There's, uh, we've already been told how the universe is going to end. We've already been told which side wins. We've already, you know, the whole story is already there. And that's why when you have uh, ministers, pastors, they're trying to overlay the events of prophecy, of Bible, Bible prophecy, onto our modern world. Because they're trying to live in the book, through it, and to make the world conform to the rules and the, and the laws and stories of the book. And it doesn't. And they, for 2,000 years, they've been trying to do this. And uh, it really hasn't worked, because in every generation, they've always said, he, Christ is coming now, the Messiah is coming now, or returning, if you're Christian. If you're Jewish or Islamic, one is still waiting for the Messiah. But in any case, every generation, I mean, if you really want to talk about a generation where he should have come back, it should have been the end of the world, go back to 1346. I mean, there's way more danger in 1346 than there is because the Iranians are yelling at Trump about a British tanker. All right. A third of the Europe of Europeans died in the Black Death. Those people had good reason to say. Uh, the world's ending. Things are, it's the final days. It's the revelation. I mean, it looks sp scarier for us because we have the all-seeing Palantir where we can, anywhere there's news happening in the world, we can see it as if it's next one town over. So we have a false sense of um, immediacy and we have a stronger emotional and intellectual connection to others around the world and it sure looks like when you aggregate all these things at once, it, it really does. You really can. The scriptures match. The, the descriptions are almost exact. You can really add up things and have them have the equation come out balanced. Um, but they've been doing that since the books were compiled. And they have yet to be correct. I'm not attacking. Uh, I'm, I'm merely pointing out. This isn't an attack. I'm not saying a pejorative statement against a person's faith or of their interpretation of Scripture. I mean, because ultimately, who am I, right? I mean, who am I, you know? Um, but I would caution, let's say that. I, I would be cautious about being fearful. Because uh, ultimately, if, if it is in fact real, and I'm wrong, and there is God, he already said that that it is he who knows the day and the hour. Yes, you need to prepare for it and be ready at a moment's notice for his return, but you won't know when. 
he'll come like a thief in the night for us, for the sinners. You know, for, I mean, the re- the rejectors, let's say, of 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 Christ. Because technically, whether you're, we're Christians or not, we're all sinners. So that's why he died to begin with. He died to save us. Uh, and we all need salvation. So there's no. Um, uh, there's there's really no differentiation in, in the, the loving heart of God between a believer and a non-believer in terms of one's sinfulness, right? But I mean, in terms of one's, one's capacity for salvation, obviously the believer will be saved and uh, uh, the rejecting one will, will, through their own actions, be damned, damning themselves. But it, it, it looks an awful lot like, you know, and, and Iliade tried to suggest that these linear religious worldviews, one was more cyclical than another, uh, etc. And, but in, on the whole, the formation of the Abrahamic religions or their spread really spelled the end of, of uh, sacred cyclical time. Uh, the idea of being in accord with a universe that's continuing to relive its own story exactly as everything must have been before. And so you, you have, and this is a slight uh, deviation, uh, slightly different direction because in the East, a lot of ideas came from the East, from Buddhists, from Hindus, and they permeated the Hellenistic cultures that invaded Persia and ultimately reached the, uh, in its farthest reach, they had invaded Western kingdoms in, in uh, India. And when they interacted with Buddhism and, and Hinduism, um, it, it changed. Also through Pythagoras, he too believed in metempsychosis. Plato. Uh, constructed an argument for metempsychosis. So the idea of, if not direct repetition, you do have cyclical uh, structure that the soul is part of, uh, where where it is is being born and dying again and again, reborn and dying, reborn and dying. Um, this idea was a lot more common in the ancient world, I think, than it's given credit for. Certainly in Christianity, there's no place for it. Um, it, it can't, it can't. And they've spent 2000 years trying to prevent it from ever taking root. Um, because then if everything is reincarnated, why would you need salvation? Why would you have an end of the world? You can't, although the Buddhists do have an end of the world of the or and the Hindus say we're already in the final age, the Kali Yuga. There's also a constant renewal. In Christianity there's no place for it. It's happened once, it begins and it ends, and it's over. And then we those of us who are or are 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 saved spend eternity at the right hand of God. That's linear. You don't have room in there for people being reborn and having memories from past lives, which is a hokey 
kind of a Western, more a uh, New Age. Uh, although there are very compelling seeming examples uh, among the Druze and of Lebanon, and some of the people, some evidence in in, in India, uh, and and some, I mean, I. I I've even heard tales of soldiers being reborn, and at two or three years old, they tell their family, yeah, I was, I was shot down, or you have stories of reincarnation where they say, look, you know, I was a man before who lived in that village three villages over. You know, they'll, they'll go to a place they've never been, and they'll actually articulate, look, I know exactly where we are. And these are very spooky and interesting examples. And now, I don't know if it's real or not. I am willing to go out on a limb somewhat. We always hedge our bets, we overeducated scholars. And say, since it's an experience people have, it's valid. That as a phenomenologist, I want to go back to the things in themselves. I don't ultimately give a damn what is or isn't real and what can or cannot be differentiated as this is more real than this, this is less real than that. You know, it's tempting to pass such judgments and to react to certain things. You come across this idea and your first response is, what? Um, because it's experienced as an experience by people, it is real. And worthy of of both of respect and worthy of being treated on its own terms as every bit as equal with any other experience that human beings have with its own textures richness qualia with its own you know effects and we know that people who have mystical experiences either induced through ritual or prayer and fasting or through through atheism and through drug use they change people dramatically and they save lives they fight depression they help open the mind up we know this and and most of the mystics of of the major religions were men of brotherly love men or women of of deep abiding love for humanity and wisdom wisdom and gentleness and kindness these experiences so expanded their horizons to such a great extent, uh, it, it made them more evolved, more conscious. They were existing on a level of higher consciousness. So these experiences are authentic and, and, and even go so step further. It's real. I don't understand how it works since I don't believe in God up in the sky. But somehow the brain is is created to share these experiences, to experience these, and, and as a, a direct response to become healthier after having done so. Why would we need this? If there was no purpose for it, it would weaken in its influence. I mean, how much influence does your appendix have over your overall health? If the thing gets infected, you got to get it out before it kills you. Otherwise, it it has some effect on the immune system, but uh, very little. So wouldn't the, to, for lack of a better term, let's agree with, oh, and I'm blanking on his name, let's say the God part of the brain 
is constructed through evolution. And there's some books I'm delving into about the evolutionary biology of faith. The faithful uh, primate, the believing primate, sorry, that discusses that very concept. Religion is an evolved structure for human primates. It um, has an evolutionary purpose. And, well, if it had no purpose, it would weaken in its influence. And can it be assumed over the long haul if, if we don't have the need for experiencing of the transcendent, of the sublime consciousness? We would not have that capability. It would not be, you know, it's, it's um, not exactly, but it's similar to Julian Jaynes when he says, look, uh, I, I think he's wrong, but not in principle. In principle, I think there's something to what he's saying, his scholarship. But he's suggesting that in a prior level of civilization, we were unconscious. And the right side of the brain, um, the right hemisphere, and the left hemisphere were of equivalent influence over our consciousness, which is why you'd hear the voice of God, because the right side of your brain, the artistic, mystical side, if you, you know, I think these have been disproven repeatedly, but this is what Julian Jaynes argued in the 70s. It had more sway over our experiences, and it was the source of our experiences of the divine. And now we know the temporal lobe has something to do with this. Uh, and we know we can put people in this God helmet, and we can stimulate certain parts of the brain, the parietal lobes, uh, with certain radio fre with frequencies and electricity, and we can cause people to experience a presence of the divine. And it is, it's real. It's like DMT. It's real. This is not a dream. This is not uh, a creepy feeling, a hallucination. Like before you're falling asleep sometimes, you might have a brief half-waking sleeping dream, hypnagogic hallucinations, right? It is real. It's real. And all we're doing is pumping certain frequencies of electricity and stimulating some of these nerves. It's not just an important part of our brain. It's a powerful, uh, it's a powerful underlying program in our brain. It's like the source code for the whole matrix, the whole thing. The source code is, is the capacity for transcendence in consciousness. It's 5.43. And hence, I, I, I argue, therefore, right, that it's something we need. If we didn't need it, it would not exist. And most people are going to tell you that falling in love is the defining experience of their lives. And it, the only reason for being alive is having a family You're, and the love you feel for your, for your spouse, for your children. Your romantic, it might be the most vivid time of your life in those few months or years where you're falling in love with this other person. It might be the most vivid, the most powerfully emotional, influential stage of your life is that brief period. Why? That's sort of like experiencing the divine. You're experiencing an otherworldliness. Um, it's necessary. There's a psychic need for it. And even some of the scientists, one can disbelieve in, in the religions as they present God. 
but still accept the need for higher experiences, whatever that means, whatever that signifies. If you take DMT and you talk to God, um, you may know intellectually if you're a believer in God's non-existence. Okay, that he's not there, but you talk to him. And it was as real as uh, when you met the person with whom you were most in love. It's that real, and it's, if nothing, even more significant than that for you, as I understand the, the reading I've done. And so it has, <laughs> it, it's a very defensible argument. I know, I know that, um, well, not all agree with this, of course, um, and there are compelling arguments for the contrary, but I because on the one hand, I'm, I can't see us dispensing with the need for community or and religion offers the potential for transcendence, but it's also the, the biggest stifler and killer of these very experiences of the divine when you have a holy text and a liturgy and the priesthood and you have all these authorities, they'll stifle that in you. So I almost wonder, yeah, that almost refutes my arguing that humans need it because so few do have direct experiences of it because of the structure of their religious institution, not, you know, itself. But if we have the need for art, that nobody would do away with art. No one. With religiously inspired art, no one would do away with. With poetry, with music, I, at one point, Christopher Hitchens was talking about how much he loves Handel's Messiah, the music, yes. And so, no, they would not do away with that. But I'm not sure how there could ever be more if one do, does away entirely with the ideas of, of God. If not of God, then we need the holy. We need the transcendent experience. We need the potential for transmuting our consciousness. Transmuting our consciousness. Because that's a perfectly, it's a human need. Uh, a human, even a drive. It isn't even a need. It's a drive. It's as primal and as powerful as our, our drive to reproduce and have families. Um, without it, there, there may be an impoverishment. Uh, one that's very damaging. So, so, um, these religions, uh, the passage of time, the reconstruction of these models that we interact with, their errors in potential errors and misunderstandings in, in all of this. And in our understanding of their purpose, of their, of their goals. And a lot of the driving elements of this is we're still under the sway of the Mediterranean ancient world still under its sway. And it's a good thing in a, in a lot of ways that, that we've discovered the Nag Hammadi Codex, that the Gospel of Judas has been added to the canon of Gnostic texts that are easily accessible by people of all faiths. You know, we continue to discover these amazing um, archaeological sites that, that make suggestions that whatever else might be wrong or disagreeable about the Bible it is correct on its descriptions of the, the 
geography and uh, the trading situation, the different cities of the ancient world. It, it's they're finding these cities that prove that the world the compilers of the Bible were interacting with through that text did in fact exist. I notice that I'm saying that very carefully. I am not saying archaeologists are proving the accuracy and the validity of the Bible, as, as William Foxwell Albright attempted to do in the early 20th century. And in a lot of ways, he actually succeeded because he was such a brilliant scholar that his thesis was almost impregnable for a long time. Um, but there's the, the need... Uh, there's the influence of the ancient world, and the source, the source of a lot of this is our interaction with, with fire, with the element of fire. So I'm going to, um, let's, let's take this time to try to stop and regroup. Uh, this is the end of segment two of Sic Mundus Creatus Est, this is one of two projected discussions to convince anyone who ever comes across this website, now and forever, until they erase it all, I suppose, that Dark on Netflix is an amazing show and they should watch it. So, I mean, imagine this, right? I'm trying to convince you to watch this show. I mean, you always have people telling you, you got to watch this, you got to watch that. I'm marshalling 2,500 years of philosophical tradition and religious and theological uh, polemic and argument and apologetics to get you to watch this show. That's, that's how much I'm inspired by this show and how strongly I think it's worth watching. And so segment three, I'll try to bring this back and start again with different aspects of alchemy and hermetic philosophy. And so... Let's say this is the end of segment two now, and we'll start again with segment three in short order. This is the Rogue Philosopher Podcast.